Aisha, you need to speak up because your voice on my thingy is really low. How is this? That's so much better. Thank you. Okay. <laughs> so Aisha and I just decided that we're going to get tattoos of the sound, the picture that the sound waves make of us laughing because we do that so much on this podcast <laughs> that I have to cut like half of the podcast out when I edit it. And I, I we came up with the most beautiful n- the sound waves of laughter. The sound waves of laughter. That sounds like <laughs> it sounds like I need to have like a a, 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 a dream catcher. <laughs> like a new wave breaky song. <laughs> Here we are, the sound waves laugh. There we go. I'll be editing. <laughs> we just laugh for like five five hours. Oh, that's why I love you. Okay. Um, and, and we need the laughter, and I do believe in laughter. And I actually do believe that sound waves of laughter are really good and necessary in the world because the world is so screwed up. And um, we are actually going to dive right into a, a topic today. And, you know, just so you guys know, Aisha and I kind of decide what we're going to talk about um, before we come on here, but it's not like we really plan anything. Sometimes we might read an article that we're going to talk about, um, but this this is pretty much off the cuff. So just this is how we relate if we were sitting at a coffee shop or at the diner that we normally go to or the bookstore or whatever. Um, and so today we're going to talk about a topic. We were, we were going to have Nadine Smith on, this, which would also be an apropos um, uh, episode to have uh, as she's an activist, but we're going to switch her up and have, we're going to um, have Lisa on, uh, on this podcast because yet another police shooting has happened. And Lisa Boven, uh, Boving Learned is a former retired police officer who has some really fascinating and interesting things to say about this. So, so we'll talk about that. But um, unfortunately, yet another black man has been shot down by police uh, in, in his grandmother's backyard. We're talking about Stefan Clark, for those of you who might be listening at a, at a much later date. But um, he had a cell phone in his hand. I believe, and uh, police mistook it for a gun. Um, and I'm, I, it's, I'm, I hate to say this, but it's almost kind of like I'm out of, I'm out of angry words to say. Uh, yeah, I, uh, I concur. Um, I think once we jump into the conversation with Lisa, um, that will help to facilitate, you know, what I'm thinking, what I'm feeling about it, because there are some things that she's touched on that I think um, would resonate with what this um, recent mm-hmm. uh, police shooting. Mm-hmm. Um, so just, I'm just immensely sad and angry and frustrated and exasperated. I think exasperated actually is yeah. where I am. It's just exasperation. It's, you know, it's, it feels like um, trying to dig a hole in the, in the sand. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And I think what's so frustrating to me and, and, you know, I'm a white person. Um, I'm one of those white people who goes, are you freaking kidding me? Like again, another one. Um, and it's something, it, this is something that I care about. I know a lot of white people who don't really think twice about it. And, and to be quite frank, you know, um, 
my son is white. I, I don't worry about it half as much as I do, as do the, the moms of black sons, you know? I would, I would go so far to say as the families of black men and yes. black women, I know that I, you know, I don't have children, but do I worry about my African-American 31-year-old brother who's a large frame and mm. isn't always in a shirt and, and tie all the time? Yeah. I yeah. Do. We came from, you know, standard middle-class family. Yeah. I'm thinking of a friend, Aisha, you know him as well, a friend of mine who is a black man. He is a lawyer who uh, happens to have dreadlocks. And he told me, about a day that he was driving home. This was probably about two years ago. He told me about this. He was driving home. And I mean, he's a, you know, he is a well-educated black man just driving home on from vacation with his family, not doing anything wrong. And he got pulled over. And he says that he, he fully, he says, I, I know I didn't do anything wrong. He goes, I know that the, that getting pulled over was kind of bogus, but more importantly, he said he, because of who he is as a black man, he felt absolutely paralyzed as far as not being able to, he, he said he had to keep his hands on the steering wheel at all times. He had his young daughter in the car and he was, he was saying that all he could think of was oh my God, is this the day that my daughter is going to see her father get shot Mm. in front of her? And no white person has that experience, has that thought when they get pulled over by the police. Mm -hmm. And I think that that's one of the things that white people are doing very poorly is showing, even if they can't... the difference between sympathy and empathy, but sympathy is almost empty. But to, to the 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 lack of the willingness to even attempt to imagine what that must feel like on the part of so many white people is one of the things that I have I'm frustrated with my fellow white people about. I, I'm I'm being completely real there. Mm-hmm. I'm really frustrated. And I don't know what it would take to um, help white people start to have that empathy and and to start understanding that. I don't know. Purely observation. Mm -hmm. Um, And this isn't based on on hard fact. Um, Purely observational for me is that, um, example, the drug, drug epidemic. The drug epidemic hit was in black communities for decades. Um, you know, the heroin epidemic, when they were talking about, oh, now, you know, like we're in the, the tens and, oh my gosh, it's a national crisis. Da, 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 da. Because white people are dying of overdoses. Exactly. And that's now finally, because it has hit home because, and it's not just the poor white people now, it's the rich kids mm-hmm. who are, you know, taking, you know, prescription pills or, you know, doing heroin or what have you, um, that it has now become a national crisis and an epidemic. And observation says to me that until it becomes a significant enough problem for people outside of the African-American community, people or communities for people of color, um, 
historically our nation doesn't see it as a problem and can't find that empathy until it, they can actually experience it for themselves. And then, then they feel the outrage, you know, same thing with, um, you know, I love the, um, the time's up movement, but it took, you know, white starlets, white starlets to finally speak up for it to become a problem. Yeah. You're, that's st- disturbingly accurate. <laughs> it's, a, it's a, an incredibly astute observation and, uh, incredibly anger, uh, incredibly angering to me. I don't know if angering is a word, but it's, it's very, it makes me so angry. However, um, the good news, and I mean that in quotes very facetiously, and yet it's also going to be a true statement, is we might be on our way to that because I can think off the top of my head of two shootings, two police shootings that involved white people, mm-hmm. that innocent white people who have been killed by police because of the over-militarization of police, because of the, I, I don't the, the training of that police officers are, are seem to be getting. Um, one was the, the white woman in the alley who was the one who called to the cops. Mm-hmm. And the other one was um, a, a white man in a hotel room who was stupid enough to not that I'm victim blaming because, but let's face it, it's uh, whatever. Okay. I probably just said one of, remember when I said I was going to say stupid things, that was probably one of the stupid things I said I was going to say. Um, but he, he, lacking foresight. Yes. A lack of foresight caused this man to, uh, point a rifle out a hotel window. And I think it was a toy rifle. I'm not sure. I have to, I, I don't have the story in front of me, full disclosure, horrible journalism right now, but, but he was, he was pointing, he, or they thought he was pointing a rifle and they, and police pinpointed it to that, uh, that window, that room. And then later on the guy who had absolutely no, no agenda whatsoever. He was walking, he walked out of his hotel room with his girlfriend completely unarmed. The police Caught, uh, told him to get, and you can see the video, the police told him to get down on his knees. And he was completely confused, had no idea what was going on, followed their commands, got confused by their commands at one point, moved his hand like from the top of his head to toward the floor because he was confused about what he was supposed to do. And the cops shot him dead like a million times. I, I, I don't know how many times they, they shot him. Mm. So those two episodes, you know, kind of, I think it points to two things. Number one, it points to the fact that maybe white people will start paying attention. Maybe, I don't know. Maybe. Maybe. Um, And two, the fact that I think there's a real problem with the training that uh, police officers are getting. There's the problem with unconscious bias, um, which is obviously a factor in, uh, in, the, the the shootings of black men, how and black, I should say also black women too. Um, I'm thinking of Sandra Bland, although that was not a shooting. Uh, it was probably something even more horrific. Um, but it was it's it's also a matter of an an inability to handle these incredibly stressful situations. Mm. Now I don't also I don't want to demonize all cops either because I, I I'm pro cop right? In a lot of ways, you know, like I, I do think that cops do an incredibly difficult job. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think one of the things that Lisa says, and we'll get into, I want to hear more about what, what you, what's on your mind about this, Aisha. I feel like I'm doing too much talking here, but 
um, I think one of the things that, that Lisa says in, in her, her interview that's really interesting is um, this idea that, 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 that there is, there's this code of silence in policing and it protects the bad, the bad apples and it's ruining policing for every, all of the, everyone. Right. You know, what's, what I found interesting about that is one of the arguments um, that you will hear from police in trying to investigate crimes is that they go into, they say, well, one of the reasons why we're not able to um, close this case or we're having trouble, you know, getting information and blah, 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 is that nobody will speak. Mm. So it's ironically, you know, the blue wall of silence in terms of bad behavior, they get frustrated when the opposite happens, when the same thing happens with the opposite group. Nobody's going to speak. Mm. say anything you know Mm -hmm. even though they're going to protect the bad apples um in a different way you know i mean like they're like i don't want i don't want to get hurt either but the same thing is happening and Mm -hmm. unfortunately you know i think on both sides both groups of people really suffer you know the group as a whole suffers when when there is no when that silent curtain comes down um Well, this is the thing i think too i i think that's also a very a very astute point is that um, nobody's winning here. Yeah. You know, when, when, when white cops shoot black men, nobody wins. It's not like, it's not like there's a great scorecard and the cops are winning, right? That's because I truly believe that, that any, most cops, I'm, I, I'm not going to, I'll say, I, I won't say, I do believe in the redemption of, it's so hard to say the redemption of all human humanity, even though there are some humans that I would really hate to say that about, but it's true. It's not just based on my opinion. I get it. <laughs> Whatever. I couple people. Couple people pop I, into my head that I would <laughs> like, I don't know about that one, but <laughs> if I speak it and I pray for it, I will make it manifest. God loves us all. <laughs> Oh my God. Okay. Um, no, that was, that was perfect. Uh, but I, 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 my point is, is that I don't think that, uh, a white cop who shoots a black man is ever fully whole again. Right. I, I really believe that, that there's, there's permanent damage that is done to that person's soul because I just don't think it's possible to take another human life, even if it's quote unquote, a good shooting, right? Like even, even if it's something where you were truly defending yourself. And, and I know that those situations happen all the time. Like I, I do or know another person, there's a man with a or, exactly and you have to shoot him in order to save the baby. Absolutely. Like, you know, I, I get that those things happen and, and that, but I, but I just don't think that, a, that a human being, can you, I, I think that there's some serious psychic damage that happens to, to a person when you have to take another person's life, you know, mm-hmm. um, even when you do it for a justified, really good cause. Mm-hmm. I think, I think there's a cost to humanity, to your own humanity in that. So nobody's winning from any of this crap, you know, and, um, and yet we still, so many of us feel like we need to take a side, you know, black lives matter or all lives matter or blue lives matter, you know, and the all lives matter stuff. Maybe we should talk about that on needy because I could go off on that for, for a lot of stuff, but, but maybe we should talk about that on when we talk with Nadine. But um, I think that 
Lisa, anyway, is going to bring us a lot of clarity or maybe more questions, and maybe that's a good thing. Um, but she's going to bring to the table um, some an inside perspective on what happens with police and uh, what maybe the stuff that white people never really thought of. And she's really she's a good friend of mine. She is a coaching client of mine, and I have permission to tell tell people that she is working on a book for about this issue, and she's also running for office. So um, we're going to talk right now with Lisa Boving Learned, and then we'll come back, and Aisha and I will wrap it up. Today, we're speaking with Lisa Boving Learned. Lisa spent 25 years on the Tampa Police Department, where she focused on community policing, crime prevention, and problem solving. She is a trained child abuse and domestic violence investigator. Her community-centric approach led her to develop the department's sex offender monitoring program, which was recognized by the Department of Justice COPS office as best practice and became the model for departments throughout the country. The department applied the same community-based techniques to proactive juvenile monitoring, which greatly reduced recidivism. Lisa was one of the developers and instructors for the department's innovative domestic violence training, which sought to eliminate the arrest-only response by increasing officer awareness of victimology. Lisa also served as a field training officer and field training supervisor, child abuse investigator, sex crimes detective, and finished her career as a street sergeant by choice in order to continue her work with the community. She says that her experiences and interest in understanding the underlying causes of crime led her to believe that bias and racism is not adequately acknowledged or addressed in law enforcement. I'm excited to have you here today from Lisa Boving Learned. Hey guys, Carrie here. Before we continue with our guest today, I just want to let you know that if this is a podcast that you are really enjoying and you want to hear more of, if you can think of somebody you want us to have on the podcast, or if you just want to send me your thoughts and comments, questions, I want to hear them. So shoot me an email at Carrie at CarrieConnelly.com. Carrie is K-E-R-R-Y and it's Connelly is C-O-N-N-E-L-L-Y. So Carrie at CarrieConnelly.com. And hey, listen, I also wanted to tell you that You know, I didn't always um, have the courage and the bravery to do something like this podcast. I don't know how to podcast. I figured it out because my ultimate purpose was more important than any fear or lack of knowledge and skill that I had. As a certified coach, I take my 25 years of corporate nonprofit management and entrepreneurial experience, and I combine that with my intuition, with my empathy, and I help women do the same thing. I help women step out into courage so that they can do what they're supposed to do out there in the world. So if you're a woman who believes that you have something amazing to offer the world, that there's something you're supposed to be doing, and you just can't figure out what it is, or maybe you know what it is, but you're not quite sure how to make it a thing, reach out to me. Again, my email is carrie at carrieconnelly.com, and hey, let's talk. I can't wait to hear from you, but now it's time to get back to our guest. Welcome, Lisa. I'm so excited to have you on the podcast today. 
Thanks for having me. It's my pleasure. I'm so excited to talk with you. So I'm going to go ahead and and get right into it because I've already introduced you uh, to everybody. But I want to just for those people who are only listening to the podcast and not watching this on on YouTube, I just want to um, clarify for you that Lisa is, as you've already heard, a former police officer. Uh, She's also a white woman who supports Black Lives Matter. And um, I think that's just important for you to understand where she's coming from. And uh, Lisa, do me a favor and let's just start off with, and I've had the pleasure of working with you as a coach for quite some time. And I've, uh, I know some of the stories that you have to tell and they are powerful stories. And so I would love for you to start off with telling us a little bit about what you've experienced and what you've witnessed in your time as a police officer when it comes to dealing with people of color and race issues? Sure. Um, I think that the, the breakdown for me is my, my realization has happened over time is that I've realized that policing as a whole, and this isn't each individual person, this isn't an attack on an, a, a one officer or whatever, people tend to take things personally, but systemically, what we do is we, we, we lump large groups of people into categories of criminality. Mm-hmm. Most of the time, like in my career, we would be told, okay, go to this neighborhood. And we were, and we genuinely believe that, you know, there's high crime in this neighborhood. So we, we, the police officers themselves think they're doing the right thing, want to do a good job. So you go to this neighborhood and you end up over-policing mm-hmm. in the neighborhood, meaning like you're on every corner, there's a car everywhere, no matter, you know, think of your neighborhood. I, I, I say to friends of mine when they, when they say, I don't understand what you're talking about. I say, well, Okay, think of us, if you've lived in your neighborhood for any time, I know my neighbors, I go walk down and talk to them from time to time. If I was going over to their house for dinner, and I asked my brother this one time, did, if, would you think if you walked across to your neighbors and you cut across the lawn and then across the street in the middle of the block and you were carrying a beer, mm. do you think the police would come and stop you? Right. If right. you're white, and if you don't live in one of those neighborhoods. But we're in these neighborhoods, and that is technically a crime. All those things are technically crimes. Mm-hmm. Do all of our kids have lights on their bikes? Do they, do they come home after dusk? Um, you know, they're pedaling down the street. Do you have any expectation a police officer is going to, you know, stop them, ticket them? You're working on a book, which we'll talk about in a little bit. But it's about how the system protects and sustains this over this type of over policing that you're talking about. Okay, so I'm out on the street mm-hmm. and it's, you know, nine o'clock at night, ten o'clock at night, you know, and I'm I patrol in one of these Af- predominantly African American neighborhoods. And I see a kid riding a bicycle or somebody riding a bicycle down at the other end of the street. I'm gonna immediately go down there. Mm-hmm. Stop that person. Now maybe maybe he's involved in some kind of drug activity. Maybe he's not. Maybe he's just a kid late getting home from an after-school activity or, you know, or, or a job. I mean, mm-hmm. there's plenty of guys, you know, where, you know, peddling home from jobs and they can't afford a car. So I stopped the person. Now I'm going to look at the computer. Generally speaking, if the computer says that the person has been stopped numerous times, cited numerous times, I'm going to not even care. And I'm going to cite him again, because I'm going to say in my way of thinking systemically, you've been cited numerous times. I'm not going to give you a break. I'm giving you the ticket because you are thumbing your nose at us. Mm. That's the way Okay. Mm-hmm. When really not, and that may be the case, but in many other cases, it could be that probably he's poor and can't afford. Right. The light. Right. Or 
the car. He can't afford to get the, the taillight fixed or the headlight fixed or whatever. Which, so, which kind of speaks to systemic criminalization of poverty, right? Yes, yes right. absolutely. Yeah. Uh, so because if then, and you saw that like in, in the, the overall Ferguson report, I don't even want to get into the, the dynamics or the causa causations or anything of the sh actual shooting, mm -hmm. but the Ferguson report laid bare a lot of those issues where it, they were criminalizing poverty in Ferguson mm -hmm. because the tickets were just piling up and piling up. And if you are making $7.25 an hour and you can't afford the first $50 ticket or $100 ticket, whatever their, you know, whatever their equipment violations are, um, where I came from, they got to be, before I left, $100. Mm -hmm. If you can't afford the, the $20 light, you can't afford the $100 ticket that the officer just gave you. Right. So now you're deeper in a hole. Now you pay, now it's late. There's additional fees tacked on. It just keeps, you know, becoming a, um, a, a circular uh, problem for you and you get deeper and deeper now it becomes criminal at some point when you don't pay the citation okay so lisa what what makes you passionate about writing this book and telling this story and by the way she does not have a publisher or an agent yet she's still writing it so out any agents or publishers out there but still yeah still working on it but what makes you passionate about writing this book what makes it something that you just have to do um well what strikes me in in, in really in my soul is that after my career and after experiencing so many things that every police officer experiences. But I saw so many examples where we were doing things wrong. We were, there was racism, imply, implicit bias, um, inaction, and yet, you know, we deny it. Mm. The black community, from we, what we've heard from Black Lives Matter and, and all these groups is that they keep saying, but it's really happening. And there's this disbelief by white America and policing in general, we keep saying, no, no, no. And we say, those just a couple bad apples. Mm -hmm. And I'm just saying, we can't keep tolerating those bad apples because they really are spoiling the bunch and they are making everybody less safe. How, how are they making everyone less amping, safe? They're amping up the anger on both sides. So mm -hmm. when, for, for example, I went to a call years ago and they told us, listen, it was such a serious thing. They didn't want it out on the police radio. Uh, they said, call into the dispatcher, the dispatch supervisor before you go to the call because we need to tell you what's going on. So I called in. They said, yeah, we're not putting this over the radio to have the media come, but you're going to a cross burning in, in an African-American family's yard. I was like, wow, I couldn't believe it. I mean, it was like mid nineties. I'm thinking, how does this happen? I, mm -hmm. you know. So um, as I'm hanging up the call, the, the, the phone, um, the, I hear my partner that was going to the call with me, he's already there. So I said, oh, geez, I got to get there. So I shoot up the street and lo and behold, there's this, the, the, the family tried to put it out with a hose, but there's this smoldering 10 foot cross in the middle of their yard. Mm -hmm. And the poor wife is standing there on the stoop, you know, hugging herself or, you know, this, this you know, faded dress she's wearing and everything. They're not, they're, they're poor people. The husband is looking, you know, he's in his work shirt. He's, they're just, they're just normal people. Mm -hmm. And they look terrified and devastated that this happened to them. And I couldn't believe there's a cross burning in the yard. Mm -hmm. So I'm taking all this in as I'm walking up. And the other white officer that's with me says to me, nothing to see here. Go back and get back in service. Uh, it's out. I said, what do you mean? It's out. We're done. What do you mean? He said, yeah, we're done. I'm getting ready to leave. I said, well, we're writing a report, right? He said, why? I said, well, because it's a hate crime. I mean, there's, there's a cross burning in this people's yard. Right. Did not see their face. And um, he just shrugged and just said, well, you suit yourself. I'm not writing it. And, you know, and away he walked. If I, I can, another time. What's that? I, 
Uh, that's okay. I, I, I want to hear the next story you were just going to say, but I wonder what, and I'm not, I, I'm kind of putting you on the spot because I know you're not a psychologist, but I'm, I'm wondering what do you think goes through a police officer's mind in that moment that, that makes that cross burning less important than something similar that might happen, something similarly terrorizing, like maybe stalking or something like that, that might happen to a white person? Um, I can't really answer other than their own personal internal bias that okay. you know, they're not really acknowledging. They're not really, because they're not humanizing and saying to themselves, the word you use, terrorizing, they don't think of it that. They're thinking, what's well, in the yard? Mm. You know, they truly are not understanding in that moment the history of our country and the history of racism and what cross burnings and lynchings have done right. to African Americans historically in our country. It's very that's interesting. Just- yeah, yeah. It's really interesting because that's what the cross was intended to do originally. The the cross the the cross that Jesus hung on. It the the reason that the cross that that the Romans executed people that way was to oppress a people. It was a way of keeping people in line. That's why they did it up on a hill where everyone could see. That's why they did it publicly. That's why it was horrific and horrible and and torturous. And it, it was in, in in created to instill fear in people, right? And so that's and so the fact that. Uh, white supremacists are using that or used that it's not by it's not an accident (laughs) it's not it's not by mistake and it's it's, and it's still effective it's still effective and um i will never forget the look on those people's faces i'm sure i'm sure so tell us you were you were gonna i think say another story did and i interrupted you did you Um, yeah no i just i mean i've got over the course of my i can think of a lot Mm -hmm. um or minor, some of them, you know, but it all speaks to, again, not to call people out, but to just say, if this is in your heart, even if you don't realize it, it can't, I, I challenge you to say how it cannot affect you mm. in performing your police duties and how your bias cannot be a factor. And that's, um, an, it's so important to understand that too, um, because of the power instilled. Nadine, who you introduced me to, who I I interviewed for this yesterday, uh, she'll be on after this. Um, She said that, you know, there's a social contract that's not being upheld. You know, that we, there's a social contract between the community and police officers. And that's one of the, one of the things that's so great about what she said is that's why shooting police officers deserves a harsher penalty because it's not just a crime against the police officer and the police officer's family. It's a crime against society, but that social contract is not being upheld in the same way in the other direction. My my take on that, because Nadine and I, that's the crux of what she and I have spoken about so many times. Yeah. Um, Because we both have the same, we came to, to it from, she's a social activist and I'm a career police officer. And we really struggled with those, with that intersection for a long time mm-hmm. in our friendship. And we had to really work through that. And part of the way we worked through that was understanding that, look, everybody wants the same thing. Mm-hmm. Life, liberty, the pursuit of happiness. You know, we all want to, you know, I, we, I, I was doing some training, um, uh, d- developing some training for curriculum for law enforcement. And we were talking about with another friend of mine, who, who's also a police officer, that, that everybody wants to be safe in their homes. Everybody wants to be respected for what they do. Everybody wants to have that understanding. When you really listen, stop all the noise and and forget about, if you would take away the labels, you know, Blue Lives Matter, Black Lives Matter, policing, and you wouldn't know who was saying something. 
Mm -hmm. I would challenge you to know whether or not it was a Black Lives Matter activist speaking or a police officer speaking. Mm -hmm. Not, and I mean, everybody thinks automatically the Black Lives Matter activists are, are saying all these horrible things and we see them in the news, the, you know, the one or two, you know, instances of bad behavior and things like that that are not attributable to the actual group. I had, right. to, I had to work on getting past all the biases that were generated by the media coverage. Sure. And yeah. look at what Black Lives Matter really says, and I'm not trying to just defend them, but they say, look, we're not a, we're, we just don't want bad policing. Right. Everybody knows we want safe communities. Right. We want good police officers. Here's the problem that I feel like is that we are not getting rid of the bad police officers. And you said something really interesting, which you, you said it very quickly because you were saying a lot of good stuff. But one of the things that you said that was important, I think, is the fact that, you know, it, you have to do the work to listen, to go beyond the media. And, and I think that, you know, this podcast, this whole project is, is about white people unpacking our identity as white people and all of the things that feed into our white identity so that we can recreate and reimagine a new identity separate and apart from pseudo supremacy right this idea that you know we we are somehow superior to other races that and and the privilege that goes along with the systems that have been created right from that so you said something really important and you said that, that, that we need to do the work. You, you said you had to do the work to listen to what Black Lives Matter is actually saying. So you had to go past and dig, dig deeper than the talking heads on the media and the headlines and you know all of that. And you had to actually do the work of trying to hear the message of what they're actually trying to say. How did you go about doing that? Well, because, I, that because I would assume as a police officer, you probably had, you know, just you have the white defensiveness but then you also have the police officer defensiveness where you're like hey listen i'm just i'm here doing trying to do my job to keep you safe so Absolutely. yeah so how'd you do that and that's what the average police officer is is saying and i hear them right that was you i don't know um i think that what happens is that we we get caught up in that mm -hmm. and and you think about it that's what the black community is saying too i'm just trying to go about my life okay? right. so i was i was thinking about um about this the other day, as I often do, and you know, in my writing, I was trying to think of the next chapter or you know whatever I was trying to work on, and and um and I realized that that commonality is the is where we need to be reaching. Mm -hmm. This whole question of you know who's saying what or who who wants what or who's who's more valuable or whatever. If we could just back up, you know, use our ears and listen, like they always say, you have one mouth and two ears, <laughs> and really stop. We we say as police officers. I was guilty as anyone of this, that, you know, the community never wants to listen to us. Nobody appreciates the dangers that we face. As Nadine told you, I, I guess, in your, by your reference, because we've talked about this, um, this began when, you know, she and I were friends before this. And then did she share with you her arrest? No, she didn't. Well, she and I, yeah, yeah I know she, she'll she be fine with this because, you know, we, we, we've spoken and we, you know, she knows that we were going to talk about different things. But, um, but uh, she said to me, um, well, she, let me back up, not to edit. Um, she was at a community meeting passing out some flyers and police officer took offense to whatever, um, said she wasn't obeying the rules, which the entire room of people said she was. And they, you know, grabbed her up out of the meeting, said she was being disruptive and, you know, hauled her through the back double doors and, you know, whatever. And that night, that was the catalyst for me. You asked, you started this by saying, what did you, what started this for you? 
Mm -hmm. Nadine and I had already been having these conversations. So unbeknownst to me, prior to that night, I was already having these Mm. thoughts and kind of going down this, drifting down this road. Yeah. Well, that that set me at the the top of the mountain looking down Mm. because I I had nowhere else to go. I, I, you know, I, I had to confront this and I had to say to myself, wait a minute. That is not right. Yeah. I talked to a lot of different people because I was a police officer. I don't want to just, you know, even though it's my friend, I don't want to just believe my friend, you know. Your investigative nature came out, right? <laughs> exactly what she told me is what happened. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, and so that's interesting too, because, um, and for, again, Nadine, I, I spoke, I did her interview yesterday, but she's going to be on in the segment after this. So keep, stay tuned because she's coming up next. Um, and you don't want to miss that conversation. But um, one of the things that I've learned that and, and that I have I talked a little bit about with Nadine is the fact that you had an authentic relationship with Nadine that helped you to say, I'm not going to believe what's I'm going to make sure I know the truth here. Right. And I think that part of one of the biggest problems that in general that that America is facing right now is that there aren't that many authentic relationships between white people and black people. And though the lack of those authentic relationships makes it so much easier to dehumanize people and to, um, and I'm not talking about the cool, the white person who has the cool black friend, right? Like I'm not talking about that. What I'm talking about is authentic relationships where you can both sit down and have hard conversations about this stuff. Yes. Because that's where it gets real. Yeah, it gets real and it's really dicey. Mm-hmm. Um, and you have to really be willing to say, um, I trust our hearts. Yes. You know, and, and so unless you really have that kind of a friendship, it's difficult. And that's why we can't get past these things when we're talking at each other. Right. right? Yeah. But my belief now, what I've come to is the belief that after listening to Nadine, um, and her telling me some of her own stories, not, not just, you know, that particular story, but her family's history, mm-hmm. you know, don't give and, too much away. <laughs> and so I had to say to myself, wow, I, I need to just quite frankly, shut up and listen to her because I wrote a piece in response to one of her pieces and I really, it hit me so hard. And I just thought, you know, we have to quit saying yes, but to each other. Yeah. All of us. Right. Because no, in any difference or any conversation, we so much want to tell, yeah, yeah, but I, let me tell you what I want to, and no, you have to, you have to be willing, if we're going to do this, we have to be willing to say, I'm listening mm-hmm. and listen all the way through. And then, you know, we can certainly give our point of view, Yeah, but we keep interrupting each other and talking at. Mm-hmm. And, and I think refusing, refusing to honor the other person's experience. I think that, you know, as, as white people, we, we want to believe the best of our country, of ourselves and of, of, of each other and of our police officers. And so it's really hard, I think. Um, and we have an idealized, you know, I, I have this like Norman Rockwell picture of the police officer and the kid in my head. And, and that's what want to be that. Yeah, we all want that to be true. And unfortunately, it's, it's not, it's not for everybody. Well, let me give you another analogy that I've used. I, I was having a, a conversation with another one of my longtime police friends, another white female. And we were, she, it was during the time when all the monuments were, mm. you know, the, the arguments about the monuments. And I said, listen, let me just put it to you this way. Suppose 
we have police memorials all over the country, right? There's one in the National Law Enforcement Officers Memorial in D.C. Many mm -hmm. of my friends are etched on that wall. Mm -hmm. I do not take it lightly. Mm -hmm. The police memorial in front of our police department, almost every police and sheriff's agency has the same. We revere those places. Mm -hmm. Okay. So we have these monuments erected that weren't erected during the Civil War or during slavery or anything like that. They were erected, you know, most of them in the early 1900s when there was the backlash against you know, uh, some you know, rights, reconstruction and, and, and rights given to African-Americans. They were, that's when those things started. Mm -hmm. So they were erecting monuments to people who were instrumental in the genocide of African-Americans in this country. Whether you want to believe that or not, that's, that's a fact. That's what that, this war was about slavery. It wasn't about state rights, all this crap they could come up with now. Mm -hmm. So um, when, you, when you look at it that way, I, what I posed to my friend is I said, what if, you know, one of our dearest friends, um, I'm going to use the specific case, but one of our dearest friends was shot and killed. And um, uh, my wife actually was the K-9 officer that found his, you know, the killer. Um, and now what if in that neighborhood, in that inner city neighborhood, if they erected a monument to him? To the killer? To the killer. Right. To the killer. How would the police feel about that? I would be enraged. I'd be going with a sledgehammer and knocking that thing down myself. I don't care if it was in the middle of a, of a sanctioned city park. Right, right. Know, to jail. Right. And I bet you all my police friends would be right with me. Yeah, yeah. So we have to understand what these things mean to other people. Right. Just because we don't under, you know, just because it doesn't affect us that way. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. It doesn't mean that it doesn't have that effect on them. Exactly. Types of systemic just injustices, you know, mm -hmm. just like when we were talking in the beginning about the, the traffic stops and the bicycle stops and things. What I try to say now to my friends is, listen, you, I know we all thought we were doing the right thing. I'm, I, I'm, I'm the first one that will tell you that I used to tell my squad as a sergeant because I believed we were doing right. We were told this is how we're going to affect crime. Go out there and stop everything moving in that neighborhood. Mm -hmm. That was the right. That's the language. Stop mm -hmm. everything moving. And what we now see after the complaints, all the prolifer proliferation of cell phone videos and all these things that lay bare what's really the consequence of it is if you are Johnny Smith and you've been stopped over and over and over again. There are cases where people were stopped, you know, multiple five, six times in a night or, you know, right. you know, 50 times in a month. If you're the 50th officer, you might be the most polite, kindly, non-racist officer. But he, Johnny is mad now. Right, right. He's tired of it. Mm -hmm. And any one of us, like I, like I said, imagine your neighborhood. If your kids kept getting stopped and coming home right. every night and Please stop me again. Yeah, because I didn't, because I went through the stop sign on my bicycle. What kid stops at the you know stops? Yeah, at, yeah, right? exactly. And yeah, if your kid came home every single night telling you that you'd be angry. You'd be calling city hall and saying, "What is going on? These are little kids." Yeah, absolutely. I want to shift gears, sort of, because you you kind of brought. Uh, the Civil War into into the, up in the conversation, and I want to kind of go back to the history of it because you have um, some really interesting things. You've taught me a lot in in the time that we've been uh, friends. You've taught me a lot about the history of policing, and 
it's actually pretty interwoven into the story, the narrative of Black people um, and slavery and the way that Black people came over here and then after the Civil War and, and slavery was technically made illegal. You've got some really interesting interesting stories to tell about that as well. So can you share just a little, I know you have a lot of this in your book, so should share just a little bit about that. Yeah, I mean, and I'm, I'm certainly not the only ones saying this. Um, right, but most people don't know it. I sadly, think. sadly, most of the writers that are saying these things are African-American writers. Right. Um, and so um, what I want to say to a, a more white audience, a white policing audience, is that, you know, that we, we love to talk about, um, how, you know, Sir Robert Peel and his history of policing in, 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 in London, and that's where we come from and everything. And that's all well and good as far as professional policing. But in this country, much of policing started with slave patrols. Mm. You know, yes, you had uh, some like constables and things. There's always been law, you know, law breaking and, and, and things going on. But in the early days of our country, most law enforcement was, was built around controlling slaves. Yep. So the slaves, slave patrols would come and, you know, keep everybody in line. And like you said, not to get too much into it, because I, I do explore this in the book, but I would just like to say, as I asked challenge some of my friends that are willing to have a conversation and, and try to get past this is I, I wish somebody in the very beginning of the police academy had told me this is where we come from. Mm. Then I might have been able to understand what, you know, draw the, draw the, connect the dots and draw the line directly from, you know, requiring slaves to have papers at all times and identify themselves on a moment's notice from a pol any any police officer or actually any white citizen back then mm -hmm. didn't didn't even need to be you know somebody with authority as policing right. any white person could stop any black person walking on the street and ask them for their papers mm. they didn't have them you know take them into custody on their own like a citizen's arrest um so if you can't just step back for a second and look into your heart. If you can't see the direct correlation between stop and frisk and the mm. things we do now in only those neighborhoods, because we only apply those harsh tactics in those neighborhoods. We don't apply them in white, you know, like, like I say to my niece, she goes to college up the road here. I said, you know, if, if the police were on your campus constantly stopping people, you know, randomly as they're walking across the campus, you know, throwing them on the pavement, you know, searching them and everything. Do you think they'd find just as many drugs as in the project? She said, absolutely. Mm -hmm. <laughs> they should be honest. I mean, you know, she goes, I don't do them, but I know everybody's got drugs on them. And, you know, yeah, yeah. So, um, and statistically, that is what, actually, I have a friend in St. Louis uh, who's another police sergeant. She's African-American. We have some conversations, and she actually has a study where they were trying to speak to their management about changing police tactics, and their study bore out over, she took the hard data over the last four or five years and they stopped more african-americans whether um bicycle car mm -hmm. or, or foot um and but the percentage year in and year out as i went through her report the percentage of contraband found was higher in the stops they made of white people than the percentage of contraband that they found on the, on the blacks that they that they stopped Interesting. And yet these black, yeah, these black communities are being persistently over-policed, which leads, of course, to this idea that, you know, black people are 
criminals. It's the criminalization of poverty, as we spoke about earlier. They get caught up in a, a system that is unforgiving to them. So there's, and one of the other things that I really want to talk about, because I, I know that you get very passionate about this, and then we're going to move into our last two questions, but I want you to talk, touch on this. You know, you have said to me um, today, you've said to me other times that we've spoken, you said, you know, you're, you're writing this book and you're, you're trying to speak out now because, which is a scary, it's a scary proposition for any, anytime you step out to, to, to speak into a storm like this, it's scary. Um, but you're, you're trying to save lives on both sides, right? And you are pretty adamant that, you know, the, the police, the system needs to do a better job of not tolerating bad apples when they, when they come up. Right. And, and because yeah, there are going to, there are some cops that are just bad. They're just bad cops. Just like there are some people that are just bad. There are some bad cops who don't, who should not be in uniform. And then there's the system, then there's the, the problem of unconscious bias in the general force, right? So those are two different things. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that what everything that you're talking about kind of addresses the, the unconscious bias, bias, although I think we could probably be much more intentional as a country in mm-hmm. making sure that our police officers are being trained in that. But what about those, what about the way the system tolerates the bad apples? And, and what do you have to say about that, about what we can do better there? Oh, we can do a lot better. Um, and you know, it's, it's sticky, it, you know, it's, it's unions and all these other things that are going on. And I'm not an anti-union person. I'm, I'm a pro-union person actually. Mm-hmm. But again, back to the conversation about the social contract, you know, police officers are held in very, very high esteem as they should be in my opinion, mm-hmm. but we have to, you, we have to hold them to the higher standard that's at that same level. Mm-hmm. So meaning uh, you know, I have this, I have this idea that, you know, we, we talk about broken windows policing. 25, 30 years ago, there was a, you know, not to get into the whole thing, uh, but, it, it, you know, we, policing said, we, we accepted this new theory that we were going to stop at the, start at the smallest farm and work up from there. Because the broken window in the building leads to another broken window and trash on the sidewalk and broken down cars and all these things. Beginning of my career... That was like the cutting edge thing. That's what we were doing. And everybody laughed at us, you know, you're the, you're the community cops. And, uh, this is what you do. You go out there and, you know, clean up, call wreckers for broken down cars and clean up a neighborhood. But now 30 years later, however long we are now, it's an accepted tenet of policing is that you don't tolerate it. You, you, you work to the smallest denominator, mm-hmm. start from there because small crime left unchecked leads to bigger crime. Mm-hmm. I had a eureka moment not long ago, and I said to myself, well, what if we applied the same thing to policing? Mm-hmm. The same standard. What would that look like? I, well, when, you know, when the police officer, and I'm not trying to say, I mean, I, I know this is going to, people's hair is going to get on fire. That's okay. Um, but if we would, the, the bad apples that we hear about on the news, invariably, if you read the rest of the story or you do an in-depth, you know, look, or you look back at almost any one of them, Mm-hmm. They will say, I would be shocked for you to find one that that's the first thing they ever did. Their jacket will be riddled with all kinds of, of you know, bad behavior, um, conduct violations, small things. And we're not dealing with it. I, I mean, there's a the horrible case that I just read about in Chicago that this police officer, when he was a rookie, 
He was getting DUIs. He was getting into fights and bars. He was doing things. They knew this 25 years ago. Mm -hmm. And he's only now been removed from the department. And there's a big lawsuit because he finally, 25 years later, killed a family in a DUI accident. Mm -hmm. So if they would have, I mean, that's pretty clear that if they would have just fired him when he was a rookie, mm -hmm. here's the thing. not everybody needs to be a cop. Again, that social contract. I say we should be like, more like, um, you know, military special forces. Only the few apply. Yeah. Fewer or, or fewer are welcome to the, to the yeah. rank. And, you know, not only are they, are, are these red flags that you're talking about being ignored, but we're also taking them and going, and here, let's put you into the most high stress, you know, dangerous situation possible, you know, and give you a gun and, and hope for the best. Like it, it's, it's kind and of it's crazy. It's not just, it's not just bad behavior either. A lot of it over time is what, what we're ignoring is everybody recognizes it now with military people. Yes. And I, you know, being from the military, I have all the respect for military people. And I'm not saying their deployments are horrific. They see things people shouldn't have to see. Right. But police officers are not going on an 18 month deployment and then coming back home. Police officers, I was on the street for 25 years. And I have friends that have gone to, in very last couple of years, they've, they've started in, in Tampa, where I'm from, is a great program for um, counseling of officers to be able to go and talk about these things. And, you know, the, the first couple, the people are like, well, what do you, what happens? Like, you go to a call, like, you know, I, one of my last calls on, on the street was, was a murder, a domestic violence murder. And the woman's, you know, entire, like half of her face was gone. Her eyeball was hanging out of her socket and she was crawling around in her blood. I'm not trying to say this to be graphic, but I'm just, you know, you see something like that. And then you are expected to just finish that call and go to the next call. Right. And the effect on men and women's psyches, seeing the things that nobody should have to see. And if you pay attention and you Google any police blogs or sites that's what they will say all the time is we see the things that no one should have to see and we do the things that you know that you don't want to do that's very true but that and then they just go back to work right right so we're not addressing that either that's so i don't important. want to sound like that you know this is all just there are bad apples and then there are also people that are a cumulative effect of trauma right that you is know? such it's such an important it's such an important aspect and i think that I think that might maybe that's where some of white people's frustration, the people who say blue lives matter, you know, um, that comes from because they're talking, they're seeing on their end, they're, they're hearing the stories about women with their faces blown off, crawling through their, through, crawling through the blood and their husband or wife had to deal with that, had to come home and see it. And they're, they're dealing with the after effects of that. And so that makes it very difficult for them to be sympathetic to somebody who may be critiquing th those people that they love. So I, I can really understand that. And I think it is important to, to highlight that um, and, and to call and demand action in, in that, you know? Uh, so I think I'm, I'm excited to read the rest of your book um, and I'm excited to, uh, to see it out on shelves and to get it into the hands of other people because I think it's gonna be a really important book in helping um, to really start saving lives on both, both sides of the coin. And so I, my last question for you is, what do you hope, because again, this, is, this whole podcast is about reimagining a white identity and, and police and the Take a Knee movement, which we didn't even talk about, 
Um, but all of that uh, is, I, I, it's such a big part of the dialogue that's happening or not happening right now. Um, so what do you imagine? Because I really truly believe that if we reimagine a new future that, that does not include pseudo supremacy, it's going to have to impact police um, and the way we do policing in this country. So what do you imagine for policing in, in a future without white supremacy, pseudo supremacy? Well, I think that, you know, a lot of those tactics and in the, in, in, in the ways that we have done things are going to have to change. Um, we're we're going to be have to be, we're going to have to be better mm -hmm. about how we police and how we do our jobs. Mm -hmm. It's a profession. When I was in, again, coming up in the 90s, they, everybody used to say, well, they need to, you know, it was the, everything was pay. We need more pay because we were professionals. We were professionals. I'm simply saying we need to act like professionals at all times. Mm -hmm. Yes, we're seeing those horrific things, but that doesn't give us a pass. I mean, are we really saying that because we run into, into danger, that's the job. Mm -hmm. That's the job we understood it to be when we took it, just like soldiers. Soldiers don't get to cry that someone's shooting at them. Mm -hmm. And I don't mean to say that insensitively, mm -hmm. but it's, it's the job. It's what we have, should have expected would be. Mm -hmm. And there's a lot of things we can't even, don't have time to get into about training and sticking with our training and not putting ourselves in, in bad situations. I was just so, thinking about that. That's why people need to go get your book or you need to get a publisher. <laughs> and we're going to talk about all these things because there's just so many things and it's not about laying blame, but it's about reimagining what if we didn't have this idea in the back of our minds where we said, you know, Johnny in that neighborhood is subject to being stopped just because of the color of his skin, because that's what we've always done. Right. And if we could say, let's be better at this and, you know, find other ways to address crime. Mm -hmm. Like, like when, and, and every time the, it, it's an evolution. Policing is, an evolution. This, is what, this is the cost of a democracy. Mm -hmm because we do work for the people. And so as attitudes change, like pretty soon here, we're not gonna be arresting people for marijuana. Um, so attitudes change and we, we shouldn't get so incensed and personally attached to say, you know, well, wait a minute. You know, if the, I say, you know what, if the, if the public doesn't want us arresting people for a joint anymore, yeah, so what? Right, right. So yeah. what, it makes you, that frees you up to go find a real criminal. Exactly. You know, exactly. and, and a lot of people will get mad that I say that and they think, oh, crime, you know, it's a criminal thing because, because marijuana is against the law, whatever. Some people are still going to always think that. But my point being that, you know, when Miranda, 1966, Supreme Court came down with their Miranda warning, ruling. Mm -hmm. And if you read back, it's very interesting. You will see skies on fire, you know, hairs on fire, skies falling, um, chicken little. We're never going to be able to close a case again. We just had to be better at doing it. Uh, we had to figure out a better way to do it. Brilliant. So what I want to do is just figure out a better way that uses a little more humanity mm -hmm. and a little bit lazy, a little bit less lazy tactics. Yeah, excellent. Thank you so much for being on the podcast today. I so appreciate it, and I am serious. I am personally invested in in um, helping you do whatever needs to happen to get your book completed and and published because I really do think it's going to be an important book. So, um, and I'm so excited to have you on today. So thank you so much. Great, thanks so much, Carrie. You're doing great work and very important work. Thank you for what you're doing.
Okay, so we are back. And Aisha, I really, I'm really interested to hear what you have to say about, uh, about what your thoughts are on, on what Lisa had to say, because I know what she has to say. And, and I know even more stories so that, that she's going to have in the book. And it's, it's eye-opening and it's shocking. And I think that white people really, especially really need to hear, hear these stories. So, but Aisha, I, I just want to know what, what was your initial takeaway? What, what stuck out for you from Lisa's talk? humanity Mm. recognizing the humanity in another person i mean it really um and she and it's something that she said but then she you know she went into um you know criminalizing of um poverty um you know um the disbelief about white america and policing she spoke about you know um digging deeper to do the work of trying to hear the message um that someone else is saying um but the one thing that resonated with me with all of that was what she said in the beginning about recognizing a person's humanity. I mean, like that all has to do with recognizing a person's humanity. I wanted to know what, what do you, what, what do you think uh, makes it so easy for people in general to dehumanize each other? I'm thinking of an article I read yesterday, which was incredibly disturbing about uh, a United States Marine, I think it was a Marine, um, who was just uh, sentenced to, I think, something like a pitiful 27 years in jail because he and some buddies over in Afghan had a little killing, Afghanistan had a little killing game where they would just play target practice on Afghan, Afghani people. Mm-hmm. And, and just for shits and giggles, and there was a picture of him with a young Afghani boy that he had killed holding his head up like a trophy like a trophy animal, like the way they do with like rhinos when, or lions when that was, and it was, it was absolutely shameful. I was ashamed of our, of our military when I saw this picture Mm -hmm. and because he was willing to rat out his friends, which he should have done. uh, I'm, I'm not, you know, but, but uh, he, he um, got only 27 years instead of life Mm -hmm. in prison. And, um, I don't understand how some, and he even says to his credit, I guess he said he doesn't know how he could have gotten to that point where he had dehumanized other people. What do you think? What do you think is going on there when people can dehumanize other people to that kind of degree? I think that um, some of it is situational. I, using that example, I think part of that is conditioning Mm-hmm. You know, like we spoke uh, before about um, how people are trained. Military, you're you're not trained. You're trained to kill. Yeah, you're trained to kill people. And um, it's funny because this was something that I was going to mention earlier, and then we kind of started talking about other things, so I forgot to. But after a certain point, you become desensitized. Like mm-hmm. it's not, you know. Um, and I think that. <clears throat> that great I think that affects our inability to humanize a person more than we even know um you know let's put it this way um you know, I know this is a stupid example but when I'm running mm-hmm. I start off with you know oh my I'm, I'm noticing this pain in my ankle you know what if I just push through it you know so I'll hit that ankle enough times to where after a while I don't even recognize it anymore. And I just keep going. Yeah. And um, 
ultimately what happens is I stop the run. I'm feeling great. The endorphins are going, but the next day I have to limp. <laughs> oh, I'm so familiar with that. Like, <laughs> you know, as a martial artist, you know, I, and I just, I, I'm a kickboxer, but I just started training in jujitsu and jujitsu is one of those things where you don't feel it in the moment because you're just like, okay, I just got to make sure this person doesn't choke me. <laughs> and then the next day you're like, oh, hello knee, ankle. I didn't know you were involved in that little fray yesterday, but apparently you were. So I can see that, that endorphins get pumping, but I think underneath there, there is this, there has to be somewhere this bias, this, this understanding and this, you know, I always want to try and bring this back to the point of this podcast, which is, is what the, F is going on with white people in our psyches that we are willing to participate consciously or unconsciously in this racist system and we're we're willing to continue to benefit from it um and and again that's that's not i understand that much of it is unconscious however there comes a time i think in most white people's lives when they are confronted with an opportunity to, to awaken and they choose not to, right? So what are the factors at play that dehumanize other people, specifically people of color? I think part of that um, is the unwillingness or inability to deal with your own stuff. Mm -hmm. The fear of if I open this door, you can say shit. It's okay. Shit's going to change. Yeah. I'm going to have to make changes. And the will, and so I think one factor in that is a person's capacity to make a significant change in their thinking. Cause you know, we grow up a certain way. We're around if, especially when you're with a group of, you know, the same group of people all the time. Um, you know, you don't have to worry about these things. You don't have to think about these things. Um, you know, and it's not just, it's, that's not even just a matter of race. It's a matter of, you know, finances, you know, like I'm used to being a certain way. And when somebody tells, when I, I know me, my finances, <laughs> <laughs> we have a on again, off again, really. <laughs> and anytime I see Something about this is what you need to be doing with your finance on the on TV or here on the radio. I turn that shit off because <laughs> I don't want to have to think about la 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 denial denial exactly. I don't want to deal with it. And yeah. do I need to? Yes. Is it important that I do? Well, if I want to not work until I'm be a grown up. <laughs> grown up is relative. <laughs> I know it's true. <laughs> I mean, really, we're all just really big kids with way more responsibility. Being grown up is way overrated. I'm so over adulting. It's not even funny. But um, so then you take it to the level of of racial relations. Um, it's almost like the same thing applies. You know, you're mm-hmm. you're you're used to being a certain way, and I you know I I think it's not just white people. I think it's black people. I think it's you know Hispanic people. I think it's Asian people, and sometimes it's people within their culture. Yeah. You're, you're used to thinking a certain way. Um, you know, like 
some African-Americans, you know, don't have the greatest relationship with Haitians. And so there's this mm. thing about how Haitians are. And then, so there's a way to dehumanize them mm-hmm. um, because, yeah, you, and, you know, as a, as a black person, do you really want to be told, you know what, that's, that's racist. You know, you yeah. Yeah. You need to deal with that. You need to figure that how are we going to move forward as a people when we can't get along with each other? You got to do something about that. Nobody wants to hear that. Yeah. It's, um, it's tribe think, you know, I think I've yeah. been, I've been studying that a lot actually. And, and um, just doing a lot of reading around tribe think and how much there, so there's, there's, it, it operates on two levels, you know, it operates on the inner the inner psychic level right where where you're sitting there going okay what's my tribe going to think and and the reason that the tribe think is so powerful is because tribe the tribe meant survival right so mm-hmm. so in your psyche being a being accepted by your tribe literally means that you are going to survive and being outcast from your tribe means that you will die. Mm-hmm. Right. And, and that's, that's more than just like psychic woo woo talk. That's actual neurobiology, right? Your brain is actually wired to, to work that way. Mm-hmm. Um, it's one of the reasons why our personal, our personalities are formed. This is what I explain to my coaching clients all the time. So our, our personalities are formed between the, the ages of birth and about seven years old. And, in those time, in that time frame, we are being programmed to be accepted by our tribe because literally we could die if our tribe decides to leave us on a rock somewhere and move along without us, right? Like we could literally die. And so we develop all of this messed up because our tribe is probably dysfunctional and messed up in some mm-hmm. way, right? And so we have we develop all of these messed up ways of relating to our tribe in order just to maintain our acceptance, right? So, so there's this inner motivation to, to stay with the tribe and going your own way, being the outlier in your tribe is a very dangerous thing. But guess what? It's safe as a grown up in the modern world. It's, it's actually pretty safe. You can go out and find a new tribe, most likely. You know? And then there's the, the sociological aspect of, of um, so that's the inner motivation, but then there's the outer motivation of just like, well, what, what people are going to say and the actual true stressors of, dis- of discovering what, when you, uh, uh, what happens when you don't align with your current tribe, mm-hmm. right? That, that, that switch over, right? Mm-hmm. So for example, I'm currently switching kind of out of the evangelical to more of a mainline church tribe, right? So there's all sorts of weird things that I have to navigate there, mm-hmm. things that I have to figure out and, and understand. So that kind of social navigation is another layer, right? Mm-hmm. And when we bring all of our biases in and we, we start thinking about, well, sociologically, you know, a white person, most white people have been brought up to believe in, maybe they won't admit to believing this, but they've been brought up with all of these, this messaging that says people of color are somehow less than, Mm -hmm. even if that's not the politically correct thing that they, and they will, even if they don't want to agree with that, those stories are still in tribally ingrained in their, in their psyche. This idea that black men are dangerous, the hyper, hyper hypersexualization of black men, 
the mm-hmm. hypersexualization of black women. Mm-hmm. Like all of that stuff is the, the quote unquote welfare queen, right? All of those archetypes are kind of inculcated into our psyches and whether or not we recognize them or even want them to be there, they are at play in our day-to-day interactions. I don't know why I just got off on that tangent. Well, no, it's not a tangent because you're kind of answering your question in a way about, so. Well, that's smart of me. (laughs) (laughs) What was my question? (laughs) So what are the factors that dehumanize? Yeah. Yeah. So how does, you know, Aisha, unfortunately, I just don't think we're going to solve the world's problems in this particular podcast, which is really frustrating. Shut your mouth. (laughs) Damn it. Surely such a thing could not happen. My, my super cape must be in the wash or something. My hot pants and cape. My hot pants. You can't be a, super, a female superhero and not have hot pants, apparently. And really big boobs. But that's a whole other podcast. Oh, God. We'll have to do that one next. <laughs> Although, I must say... In Black Panther, Lupita kicked ass in an evening dress. <laughs> really? Okay, I gotta go see this movie. You're what? I know. I, I haven't seen it twice, woman. I haven't seen any movie. And you're the second guest who's like, how many times? My last guest saw it five times. <laughs> wait, till you, wait till you listen to Ben. He's great. And he saw it five times. At last time I talked to him, it could have been up to like 10 by now. I know. I know. I still haven't seen Hidden Figures. Are you kidding me? I, I, it's, I ordered it on Netflix. I'm like, babe, did, the, did Hidden Figures come in yet or what? I'm like, and he's like, no, I changed it around. I'm like, dude, I need my Hidden Figures. I need to watch this movie. Carrie. I know. This, this is dehumanization. <laughs> <laughs> you are refusing to see movies that depict that is so white of me. Extremely Caucasian of you. That is because you're from the land of Caucasia. Damn it. I turned in that passport, man. I thought I did. Anyway, apparently not. Can't unload that crap or anything. Wouldn't it be cool if there really was a land of Caucasia? Wouldn't that be funny? That would be really funny. We could start, but you know... Well, we could do all sort. Remember our little Caucasian? What was that guy? No, the Anglo-Saxon. What was he? <laughs> <laughs> okay, another joke. <laughs> we need to let people in on the jokes. <laughs> you really want me to win the election because we have the same background, said Mitt Romney to <laughs> Prime Minister of England. So, really? have, so we have to explain the, the context here because this is actually a pretty funny story. So it's just to help you understand the, the parameters within which Aisha's and my friendship was, was forged, we were working together on staff at a place and... Um, there was uh, an election. It was an election year, I guess, and it, it was, was yeah, it was a, a Obama's second. It, okay, and oh, and Mitt Romney apparently made this ridiculous comment. What say it again? What what did he say? Something to the effect of he told the <laughs> the British Prime Minister that <laughs> it would be beneficial if Mitt Romney won because they have the same, same Anglo-Saxon background. Because <laughs> Anglo-Saxon man. That's some culture. And how, so how is that not racist? You don't want the black guy. <laughs> you and I are white. I mean, come on. 
because if he doesn't say white or black, it's not racist. It's like, it was like me, remember how I would, didn't want to say black in front of a black person? It's like he's trying to avoid whiteness. We'll just call it Anglo-Saxon. <laughs> so We'll call it the same background. The same background. <laughs> And so Aisha was sitting in her office. She had an office. I had a cubicle. So she had an office way down, well, not way, like maybe 20 feet down the hall. And I was sitting in my cubicle and I found a little clip art of an Anglo-Saxon with like a little hairy chest and a a sword and a helmet. And I emailed it to her. I just heard her laughing so hard. And a lot of things went back and forth about the (laughs) Anglo-Saxon. We have to let people into our world, Aisha, or they will never understand us. And then our boss came walking in. And then our boss came walking in. The most Anglo-Saxon. Who is (laughs) Anglo-Saxon? And he didn't get it. (laughs) He's also Republican. He probably agreed. (laughs) I mean, like, he was, like, seriously from the land of Caucasian. (laughs) God, stop. I'm not going to be able to breathe. <laughs> Sound waves of laughter. <laughs> okay. Oh man. Okay. All right. I think that's a good place to end. <laughs> this welcome to our world, guys. This is where you're gonna be for every time you sign in, you're gonna be in the land of we need the land of Aisha and Carrie. Like what's that land called? I don't Land of the swirl. Uh, Swirl. (laughs) We need to go for frozen yogurt, man. Yeah, dude. Okay, cool. So much. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Frozen yogurt. Date. Yes, absolutely. On the books. All right. Hasta la vista, people. We'll talk next time. See you later. Thanks so much. Bye. Bye. Hey guys, thanks so much for listening to the White on White podcast. This is Carrie Connolly. I've been your host today. My co-host was Aisha Irvis. Our original music is called Humble Down, written, arranged, produced, recorded, and mixed by Jeff Gaynor. Vocals by Kim Davidson, Samantha Farrell, and Ophelia Smith, with a solo vocal by Ophelia Smith. Percussion and hand claps were by Jeff Gaynor. Hey, don't forget, send me an email. Let me know what you thought of the podcast at Carrie at CarrieConnolly.com. Also, once we're up on iTunes, be sure to give us a rating and help us get the word out. Thanks, guys. See you next time.